Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. What David Cameron and Theresa May would have given for an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. But Boris Johnson, still in his first year as Prime Minister, is really making that hefty numerical advantage look fragile. The Conservative backbenchers are growing restless, much grumbling, rumours of rebellion about the government's controversial internal market bill and the lack of parliamentary scrutiny of its coronavirus lockdown laws. And now the Speaker of the House of Commons has accused the government of treating Parliament with contempt. As our first topic today, we'll dive into the recent rows and ask what it means for the government and for Parliament. We'll also look at the rows to come, and there are quite a few coming down the line. I'm going to talk about the government's suddenly revealed aspirations to build a trillion-dollar tech company. We're going to talk about how that fits into its levelling-up agenda and what to make of its industrial strategy, a once-taboo phrase that's almost fashionable again. Joining me in the virtual studio today is a great IFG lineup, Hannah White, our Deputy Director. Hi, Hannah. Hiya. We've got a pair of IFG senior fellows who've worked at the heart of government, Giles Wilkes, the former advisor to Vince Cable and Theresa May. Giles, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure, Bronwyn. And Jill Rutter, a veteran of number 10, the Treasury and DEFRA, and much commentary ever since. Jill, hi. Likewise. Glad to be here. Okay, let's start with what you might call Hoyle's War and the Brady Bunch. The Speaker of the Commons was giving the government a ticking off for failing to respect Parliament. It all sounds very 2019. But though John Burko, remember him, his bust-ups with the executive became a very photogenic feature of his time in the Speaker's chair, it's now the much more mild-mannered Lindsay Hoyle, his successor as Speaker, who's accusing the government of treating the Commons with contempt. Hannah, what did Speaker Hoyle say and why? So he really tore a strip off the government uh, for the way that they have been treating Parliament in relation to the coronavirus pandemic. And his complaint, and the complaint of a large number of parliamentarians uh, in recent weeks, has been the extent to which government has been choosing to use what what are called urgency procedures, which enable them to use the powers that they were given by parliament in the Coronavirus Act and in other legislation uh, to make regulations about all sorts of things to do with lockdown and the other measures that have been brought in in relation to coronavirus without asking parliament first. So the urgency procedure says that you know you can use something called a made affirmative process where you just bring these regulations into effect and Parliament gets a say further down the line uh, when they've already been operating. And he said that just really wasn't a respectful way to treat Parliament, that the government had been treating Parliament with contempt and that he thought it was completely unsatisfactory. And why, out of interest, uh, did he pick this rather than the Brady Amendment, which you've been writing about? So this was to do with the Brady Amendment. This was because... He was going to follow the parliamentary rules and the advice he'd been given to say that the Brady Amendment wasn't selectable. So he wasn't able, because of the parliamentary rules, to give Parliament an opportunity to vote on that amendment, even though lots of MPs had signed it. And this was an amendment which said that the government should give Parliament more of a say. He wasn't able to give them that vote, but he wasn't going to let the government off scot-free and he wanted to make his feelings known. So he made a statement uh, in advance of the debate that they were going to have, uh, which would have included the Brady Amendment, but he he wasn't able to select it. Thank you for making that ultra clear. Jill, does it make any difference at all? I think that politically, the government clearly is in a degree of problems with its backbenches, because although it managed managed to see yesterday off with some help from the Speaker, so it didn't face that amendment. We didn't uh, didn't have to judge the scale of the revolt. There were 
a few Conservative MPs who voted against the renewal of the government's powers, but it's been sort of forced to say, yes, it will come back for a bit more scrutiny. Hannah thinks it's a bit feeble, but it's quite interesting that uh, a lot of people are interpreting both this and perhaps the revolts on the internal market bill as an increasing war between backbenchers and the current regime in number 10, and particularly Boris Johnson's advisors. Quite interesting last night when Hannah and I were on Twitter tweeting a bit about the sort of rebels backing down, that Sam Coates from Sky came on and said, I think this is all actually to be interpreted as the sort of opening salvos in a very big war between the Conservative backbenchers and the Parliamentary Party and the current regime in number 10. That's fascinating. I mean, Hannah, what do you reckon? I mean, is this going to make the government consult Parliament more? Not given what they've said so far. So the commitment given to government is pretty weak, as, as Jill said, that they will, uh, where possible, allow a vote on any uh, regulations which are going to affect the whole of the UK or England. Um, but they've still got to get out that, you know, if it's not possible, they don't have to do it. And I think that really this comes down to a fundamental uh, difference of view of the role of Parliament between parliamentarians and the government. The government very much thinks, you know, well, in these circumstances, when you're dealing with a pandemic, Parliament is just a rubber stamp and no MPs are really going to vote against regulations that say, you know, we ought to have a, uh, a local lockdown in an area where the statistics are looking really bad. So what does it matter if Parliament doesn't get that vote until further down the line? And I think the view from parliamentarians is that, is that that's misconceived, that actually if you have these debates in Parliament, it helps everyone understand the rationale. You bring clarity to what's going on. You also bring legitimacy to the to the actions that the government's taking, that, you know, it's not just acting by decree, but that parliamentarians have a role. And also that you can make better policy, that problems that the government might not have identified get picked up when that just doesn't happen if Parliament doesn't get its say until these things have been operating for some time. Which sounds entirely reasonable, though you can absolutely see why a government, uh, not least a government under pressure, might not um, want to encourage all that kind of scrutiny and people say, look, you've got this wrong, even if you can improve it. Giles, from your, your time inside government, how did ministers and people putting together plans uh, view parliamentary scrutiny? It was very ad hoc, you know. I mean, you've got to remember, my two times in government were both atypical. It wasn't a very large majority. It was, in fact, for the last two years, no majority at all. So there had to be quite exquisite um, consultation with um, parliamentarians when it came to anything that might be a vote and all sorts of weird sorts of horse trading. I mean, for example, the, a lot of the history around this thing that's now called the Stronger Towns Fund all came down to the government's attempt to charm some Labour backbenchers into walking the right side of the line on Brexit. What I always found was a sense of sensitivity that we were there sitting there making plans without regard to the basic constituency level politics. And that always felt really uncomfortable. It also felt it, it felt like we were missing out on a source of information, because one thing we do know sitting in our Whitehall citadels is we don't really understand how normal people see the policies we're looking at. And the best way of getting um, access to that, far better than a focus group, is to talk to the people who have to listen to constituents every Friday. So it's a missed opportunity not to do more of it. And I always felt slightly sensitive for not having done as much as I could have. And that's, that's fascinating, because on this particular thing that we're talking about, uh, and the government's um, uh, regulations on lockdown and its emergency powers and so on, uh, they seem to have quite a lot of the public with them that, that, uh, so far, as far as we can tell. 
Um, but yeah. parliamentarians are, get, are getting very concerned about the, the intrusions onto into liberty and, and, and so on. Jill, where do you think the substance of this is going? As we're talking about the row, but the substance is, re- is really about you know, the, the, the regulations on every day. I, I think this is a really interesting question because I think, I think you're absolutely right that the government actually seems to be quite in tune with general public opinion. But what it's not in tune with is clearly the views of a very substantial wing, we don't know how big because we haven't tested it yet, of its own backbenchers who think these really are too draconian measures that, you know, sort of, if you like, the sort of libertarian wing of the Conservative Party is clearly pretty unhappy at some of the substance, clearly out of tune as well with uh, some of the press that you would normally think would be supportive of a government, particularly a government led by Boris Johnson. I think the interesting thing is if they'd had come to a vote of substance, to what extent would the government have had to look for Labour, which has been, notwithstanding what Boris Johnson keeps on saying every Prime Minister's questions, every other time Labour has actually been quite supportive of the measures, would it actually have been forced into the quite embarrassing position of only being able to prosecute its coronavirus strategy off the back of Labour MPs' votes, which I think would have been a very interesting turnaround. And as you said at the start, it is an amazing position for a government with a majority of 80 to be in you know, less than a year after that massive election victory. Great point you just raised, Jill, about, about who is acting as, as the opposition. Because the opposition is taking a very careful line at, the, at this point of, of, of backing regulations on lockdown. I mean, Hannah, could we throw, so to speak, Lord Sumption into this? who has been arguing quite a lot for people, the, the, the former Supreme Court justice, who's arguing for people to pay more attention to the liberties that are being encroached upon. Do you, who does he speak for? And is that significant opposition in his way? Well, I mean, I think... He, he speaks to those, those people who, you know, feel this ought to be an individual decision. Um, and, you know, normally, you, you know, that is the uh, position you'd expect uh, conservative government and conservative members to be taking. He thinks, you know, that this, this ought to be for everyone to make their own risk judgment on. But I think that the point that the government's been trying to hammer home, and certainly Matt Hancock in some of the press conferences and so on, has been that actually in this these particular circumstances, the individual risk decisions actually end up having wider um, consequences for the community and the sort of don't kill your gran line that uh, he he slightly uh, clumsily came out with. Um, but, you know, that that's the point that the government is trying to make, but I think they, they would be on a stronger footing if there hadn't been uh, examples of things like uh, Barnard Castle, where uh, people were clearly making, uh, Dominic Cummings there, clearly making a decision that was right for him or the, the right for the uh, whole of society. Mm. And I certainly know talking to pools of lawyers, I mean, many of them go absolutely spare at the uh, the uh, kind of things that Lord Thumption is, is saying uh, these days, not, not least a passing comment that the people shouldn't always rush to put the observing the rule of law top uh, in, in, in some of the personal personal debates that one on the today program Giles just as, as we wrap up this bit your your thought about where the you know the politics of, of this is and where mood is is going on the um on, on this interesting you know simmering debate about whether people are going too far or not far enough in trying to combat the virus well, I mean, one one um, very bland observation I'd make is it's not always a bad thing for a prime minister to look like he's fighting and embattled, so long as he looks like he's doing it for the right reasons. And as others have pointed out, this is fighting the virus despite all of the difficulties, including from your own party, is where a lot of the people are. So him being up there, even fumbling it, which he has 
terribly at times is something that we all love in the sort of Westminster bubble and, and enjoying Matt Lucas's impersonations of Boris getting it all wrong. But people out there might just see vaguely the guy out there is doing his best thing and um, is struggling to do it right. But that's because it's really, really difficult. We all know it's difficult. And so I personally think that in the politics, it does, it's not bad at all for him to face down people who seem so ideological in his party and going on about ancient freedoms and the Magna Carta and what, what have you. I think it's quite a good look for him. It's better than being the sort of jolly old libertarian Boris that his spectator colleagues want him to be again, because that would be exactly the caricature of the heedless prime minister who wasn't the right person for the moment that he should be avoiding. So personally, I think the politics of this isn't as bad for him as all of us insiders think. He's just having a hard time. And that's what being a prime minister is about. I think it also works for the people on the other side when it comes down to it, because I think the likes of, of Steve Baker and so on, you know, they want to be able to make their point. I don't think, I mean, I think it's actually quite convenient for them, as you said before, Bronwyn, that, you know, Labour fundamentally are, are going to support these measures because they can make their point about, you know, the importance of the ancient freedoms without the danger of these things not actually um, passing and then being responsible for, for saying that actually some of these um, measures which the government thinks are necessary shouldn't be put in place. Yeah, and I love the way you've put it, because Steve Baker, Conservative, uh, is, for these purposes, on the other side from the Prime Minister, which takes us back to our starting point. All right, let's move on to the other rows that could be coming down the line at the government, and there are really quite a few of them. The government seems to have sidestepped two rebellions now, one on yesterday's coronavirus Act vote, but the other on the internal markets bill. Jill, is the internal market uh, bill row over as well, or are there some big Brexit bust-ups to come? Uh, well, we've just heard that the European Union, uh, the European Commission has issued a formal notice of infringement against the UK, and the UK has to respond within a month uh, on what it's going to do and whether it's going to reconsider the position. So that's the sort of EU track on the internal market bill. Of course, the interesting backdrop on that is that negotiations are still proceeding. So the EU hasn't sort of taken its uh, taken its toys away and said, we won't come back and talk to you until you uh, drop these clauses that we hate. Meanwhile, uh, the bill itself is off to an unscheduled date with the other house. So it's going off to the Lords, where I think we'd expect it to be quite fairly savaged when it finally does get debated there. Uh, actually, not just on the provisions on Northern Ireland. I think there will be a lot of lordships. We heard Michael Howard and Lord Lamont early on coming out and saying they didn't like the uh, provisions to break international law. I don't think they're bought off by the government's amendment that eventually got incorporated into the bill. This is pure meat of Lord stuff where they think the Commons is doing the wrong thing and bringing the reputation of the UK into disrepute. So I think it would have a very hard time on those provisions. But I also think there are a lot of provisions as well that have been less focused on uh, on the impact of how devolution works and things like that, which will come up in the laws. So when the bill finally comes back to the Commons, might even say if it ever comes back to the Commons, then I think you'd expect to see a very different bill. And then, of course, we get into the stuff that Hannah's much more expert than me as to whether the Lords tries to insist on how long that interminable game of ping pong might last. But that's some way off because we're told that the government isn't bringing it back that quickly. 
notwithstanding the fact that it was absolutely essential to have this in place by January the 1st to give certainty to business in Northern Ireland, most of whom say actually they're not that interested in the provisions in the internal market bill and it doesn't do very much to help them. Yeah. And Jill, just before you smoothly hand the, the baton to, to, to Hannah, as, as you were about to do, on your first point about the EU taking this legal action, and this is supposed to be a really big week for negotiations. I can't say make or break week, but anyway, one of, one of those key weeks. How much does this matter? Is it just positioning? What, what do they mean by it? What the infringement, I think this yeah. is just following through. They said when we when the government introduced the internal market bill, they would take legal action and gave the government a deadline of the 30th of September to take action. That was then tweeted again by the chair of the German Foreign Affairs Committee, Norbert Röttgen. So I think they're just following through with that. It's not a particularly immediate procedure. So there is time, but I think they're just showing, you know, we have our processes, you are still subject to the European Court of Justice, that's what you signed up to in the withdrawal agreement. And one of the points they keep on reiterating is we can't do a long-term deal with you if you're reneging on the commitments you signed up to last January in the withdrawal agreement. So I think you'd expect this going on, but as I said, the talks are still going on. I'm slightly nervous as to speculating where they've got to because when this podcast broadcasts, we probably will have had, at the very least, tweets, if not press conferences, by David Frost and Michel Barnier about the outcome of this week's talks, which are supposed to be the final formal round of negotiations that were scheduled on the timetable released back in July. No, fair point, although I would be fairly surprised if in the short time that we are speaking here and it actually uh, uh, being a uh, put out uh, they have done a deal i don't think they'll have done a deal actually i think that's the one thing we're safe to say what we don't know is whether they'll schedule more talks or whether they'll go into this famous tunnel or get into their submarine and actually be close enough to make it worth going and trying to hammer out detailed texts okay okay, i can't resist this just explain to people where quickly tunnel and submarine the submarine, the submarine is not in the tunnel. So the tunnel and submarine is where you get to in the sort of late stages in a negotiation where people say, actually, we're going to go into a media blackout on where we're going, put the negotiators, a bit like a sort of big brother house, though, probably socially distanced, but where they sit down together and try and hammer out legal text and then emerge to sort of declare victory and say, here is an agreement we both think we can sign up to. Remember, that's what happened when Ollie Robbins went into a tunnel with Sabina Veant and came out with Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. That was the process. And the submarine? The submarine is, I think, a different way way Mm. Michel Barnier has used of the same metaphor. You go below the surface so people can't see you paddling away madly and what maybe what bits you're throwing out of the boat. Okay, it's definitely going on too long for the the, the metaphors. Hannah, at Jill's point, the, the lords, do they matter? In this. They absolutely matter. And, you know, at the very least, they're going to be, as she said, sending quite a different version of the internal market bill back to the Commons and saying, look, we really think on these things, you need to think again. Um, the, the question uh, that's been raised is to what extent the Salisbury Convention will apply to this bill. That's the convention that says that if something's been in the uh, governing party's manifesto, the Lords won't vote down uh, a bill and prevent that passing. But arguably, this internal market bill wasn't in the manifesto and, and the, the sort of thrust of it is actually counter to some of the things that were in the manifesto. But I think quite a lot of people in the Lords think that they uh, would be justified in, uh, in being quite strong and, and prolonging at least um, the timetable for this bill going through. 
Mm. Charles, let's, let's look at some of one, one or two of the other rows that the government might have with Parliament. And I'm thinking of the Prime Minister's speech on planning reform last month and the government's plans to build 300,000 new homes a year with famously at the moment, at least an algorithm, uh, not a popular word, um, uh, yeah. uh, determining where those are going to be. Isn't that exactly what uh, his Tory backbenchers are going to hate? They will absolutely hate it. And it's so naive that you it makes you wonder whether you've misread something in the story that Tories at the centre work out um, that they've solved the planning problem and here's an algorithm to do it. And you, you want, want to ask, have they noticed why things haven't happened the way they wanted them to for the last 20 or 30 years? And it's because local control is meant to be really important. And this was the whole point of the 2011 Localism Act and this, the, this crazy vision that went entirely the opposite way, 10,000 neighbourhood plans that everyone was going to come together in a wonderful feast of big society enthusiasm and produce their own perfectly aligned local um, plans for housing. The, there is no way that it was ever not going to face this kind of opposition. If you if you've ever campaigned, and I'm not a very experienced campaigner, but if you've ever campaigned, you realise that getting people to care about things is the biggest problem in um, electoral politics. And they always care about the building that's going on around them. If you want to get people out, you say, well, I'm the person who stands on this or, or that um, pla local planning concerns, and I'm going to stop those big wigs from Westminster doing it. So it's absolutely incredibly naive that they said, yes, we've sold all this with a, a supposed central sort of plan that's going to override everything. It's it also a fast track to alienating every Conservative district councillor that the sort of party in the country depends on, as far as you can see, to basically say, you're not going to get a say anymore. It's going to be dictated to you. And it's an absolute total reverse, as Giles says, of the policy uh, that they were elected on in 2010, which was let's end this sort of top-down housing targets imposed by the Labour government. So it's a real, I think this is a real substantive bust-up to come would be my reading. All right, so let's, yeah. let's stick with the substance because how does the government level up if its uh, MPs don't want it to build homes? Well, I mean, can I, I mean, one extra point I'd make is what's slightly annoying is they, they're acting like they can solve these things as if these political concerns didn't exist, as if they can play on easy mode just because they have a majority. The levelling up agenda and building houses are not necessarily the same thing, because after all, one of the problems with areas out, out there is there isn't a great deal of natural economic demand in these places. They're not buzzing. And so they're not the places that are absolutely lacking houses. If you were trying to solve housing supply issues, you'd mostly end up putting your efforts to the places that are doing very well on the levelling up agenda. What's interesting about this is, and one reason why this is provoking so much outrage on the Conservative backbenches, is this basically is about boosting house building in the sort of greater southeast east, so the areas that are already doing quite well. You could say that that will be sort of dampening some of the price signals that actually says to people, move to some of the areas that may need more levelling up. So, so it's not necessarily where you'd start with the levelling up agenda. I mean, it's solving, as the Prime Minister rightly says, it is trying to deal with a very different problem which is the unaffordability of housing in places where people want to live. But that's quite a different issue. We haven't, of course, seen what the impact of the pandemic is on, uh, on where people want to live going forward. And Jill, that's a really important point because people may want to live much further away from their supposed headquarters than they or their employers ever thought possible. Yeah, I think it's really interesting whether this changes some of the 
some of the dynamics, we might have found an effective way to revive towns that we hadn't thought of before if people are prepared to say, well, if I'm only going to go into the office two days a week, then actually I will trade for space, uh, quality of life over shorter commuting times. Charles, I mean, we've we've had the budget postponed from November to the spring, and the Chancellor's been told that he cannot talk really about uh, increasing any major taxes um, at all at the moment. Um, but do you think what we're looking at is really sustained opposition to any uh, any um, chill from the the Chancellor, if you like, any talk about rebalancing finances? Is it is this is this uh, what they? I think it will be difficult for him, just like it was difficult for Philip Hammond before. People can believe in fiscal um, good behaviour in abstract, but the moment it becomes specific, they mean, well, not not in this area or that area. The, the Chancellor understands that we've been given a real economic hit. We're less rich as a country. We can't afford as much unless we tax ourselves more. But... We've been going for so long without being that honest with people. Unlike the, you know, the governments of the 60s and 70s used to have their chance to stand up and say, I have to raise taxes because we have a real problem with the pound. They haven't done that for a while. They've been trying to ride both horses at once. So, no, we haven't yet had that really big, honest conversation. And those early Treasury briefings saying we're looking at this or that tax um, were immediately squashed by people because they said, hey, this isn't the time. Keynesian stimulus. We need everyone to feel rich and happy right now which is all fine, but it doesn't go anywhere near addressing this um, unavoidable structural problem, which is that ultimately public services do have to be paid for, and people want public services now. They really do. Well, that's a, that's a, there's a much, much bigger subject which we're, we're beginning to get into. We'll absolutely certainly come come back to. But Hannah, just finally wrapping up this, this sort of sense of uh, how the Prime Minister is dealing with Parliament in general and his own parliamentary party, He's got this majority of 80 that we referred to at the beginning. Um, are the government whips getting the sums wrong? Are they mishandling things? Or are just the nature of all these things we've been talking about very controversial? I mean, they are controversial, but I wouldn't say exceptionally so. I mean, I'd put it down to something simpler, in not really blaming the whips, but blaming the, the attitude of the government towards MPs. I mean, fundamentally, MPs, even the ones who've just been elected for the first time and you know, maybe have boys to thank for their, for their seats in the Red Wall area, you know, they want to be taken seriously. And there hasn't been much attempt in the centre to disguise a sense of, of, of almost contempt for MPs. Um, and, you know, I think Dominic Cummings apparently acknowledged that this week when he told Spads that they needed to get their ministers to spend more time in the tea room. I think there just is a sense in which Parliament wants to be taken seriously. And in, until it is, backbenchers are going to continue to, to see that actually they've got quite a lot of power over the government. And if they can get the numbers in the 40s and 50s to, to back amendments and, and to, to rebel against the government, they can actually get things that they want. We got a surprisingly way, a long way through this podcast without Dominic Cummings' name come up. But there it is. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to turn finally to a key part of the government's agenda, which you just touched on, the part that it would hope to be front and centre if it weren't for coronavirus. That's the levelling up, but in particular, the industrial strategy for promoting growth. This week, uh, particularly in an article in, in the FT, the Financial Times, we learned that the government will place a fresh focus on cutting edge technology. Giles, you wrote a brilliant piece for us this week on all of this. You're not impressed. Uh, thank you, Bronwyn. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not. This is partly um, one of the hazards of hiring a someone in their 40s to comment on government policy, because they'll remember what happened 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and they'll 
go back to the beginning of the internet. And the the sense of deja vu of a government minister standing up and saying, you know what's different about me? I really believe in government science spending driving the economy. And this way, we're going to build clusters around the country. And have you spotted the internet and what extraordinary things it's doing to productivity? And so can you please paint me as a visionary? And off they go and do this. It's exactly the same, except we do now have this obsession with trying to emulate exactly what happened in Silicon Valley with the creation of these extraordinary companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and so forth, and the amazing stock market value they've created. So since David Cameron has come along, we've had more than just science can change the economy, like Harold Wilson used to say, but science can help us create absolute behemoth companies that are worth trillions of dollars. And somehow, we won't explain exactly how benefit us all in so doing. So, no, I haven't been impressed so far. And can the government just will a giant uh, world-beating technological company into being? Well, this is the other part that drives me absolutely mad because business is really difficult. There's a reason that um, not everybody becomes very rich because finding a market that everyone wants to pay you enough to make a huge profit and then keep doing it year after year after year is incredibly hard. There are thousands of business school courses trying and people competing against it that i mean that's a good thing if it was easy it's somebody sort of taking money from everybody else it shouldn't be very easy to do it and each of these big stories are extremely unique they're all about superb management execution over year after year after year um not just technology they're about the growth of globalization, the vast size of the US domestic market, the way the internet rewards network effects and so forth. So no, it's the wrong goal. And finally, because actually the creation of a trillion dollar company is almost not, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but it's it's hardly relevant at all to whether your economy itself is prospering massively. The direction of causality is not entirely obvious. You don't necessarily do better because somebody has made an absolute fortune in the stock market. There are plenty of really, really prosperous economies from Germany to Singapore who don't measure themselves that way. And my concern is that if creating that kind of stock market value is your goal, you'll be pushed to doing all sorts of things that are a bad idea, like going easy on competition policy, which is the sort of thing that might have allowed these internet giants to get a little bit too big. Yes, and that, that was a fascinating subject, but uh, we're already deep in the discussion about state aid in general and what, and what the government might do about support for business, uh, subsidies for business and, and competition policy and so on. Jill, um, what makes a successful industrial strategy, in fact, are there any, and perhaps you take us into why it became such an unpopular phrase and philosophy for a time. I think uh, the advantage of having people who are much older than Giles is they can remember when this went very badly out of favour. So if you talk to almost any Treasury official, and I think uh, Nick McPherson, former Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, is always intervening on Twitter at any sign of uh, the government thinking that the state can be effective in picking winners, which got an incredibly bad name as the policy under, you know, going from Harold Wilson, sort of Concord and things like that into uh, the 1970s, the bailouts of various sort of British champions like British Leyland. And these all became basically just sort of albatrosses around the neck. And it was really only when you got Mrs Thatcher stopping that uh, to a very large extent and actually pursuing a very different industrial strategy which was about some bits of deregulation about uh, dare I say it um, 
creating the single market in Europe and uh, then using that as a magnet to attract inward investment into the UK with better management. That's certainly what you saw about the rise of the UK car industry, if you want to take that as a bit of a metaphor. So I think there was quite a lot of scepticism about actually, you know, not could the government and did the government have a role in creating the right conditions for business to flourish? As Giles says, that's things like competition policy, skills policy, all those sorts of key supply side enablers. But could the government actually go further and back specific companies? I think that's where people are are deeply sceptical. But this is a government that sort of one hallmark of its industrial strategy seems to be its its you know fascination with technology, big tech. When we were doing our report, our IFG report on net zero, one of the things that uh, some of the officials were cautioning against that the government's sort of plan for net zero would assume that a couple of big techno fixes would solve all of this without having to ask people to make difficult choices about writing off their newly bought gas boiler or you know having to change cars or whatever. You know, you'd actually get a sort of very rapid techno fix like you know carbon capture and storage director. Uh, air capture or hydrogen, which the Prime Minister was talking about. And I think that's a that's a bit of a sort of worry, given the sort of current view in number 10. It's a red flag to me when you hear a sudden uh, new invention of new technology being a way essentially to, to avoid difficult choices, for government to avoid difficult choices. I always wonder exactly where and why this is going to come about. We've, we've heard a certain amount from this government about decentralisation of power, of money, of effort in starting new things and so on. Um, do you, did, did you get the sense, listening to this week's uh, debate about industrial strategy, that this uh, there's going to be a bit of energy behind this, even money? Uh, shall I try and answer that? I mean, sure. we, as we as we were discussing earlier with the, the whole land question here, the government is very conflicted about decentralisation because it all talks about civil service reform. And, but the first thing that most people would say about the civil service reform we need to do is we need to have a more decentralised system with more competence and agency out in the regions, as it were. And that seems to be something that, in particular, Dominic Cummings seems to be very averse to. His first big campaign was the to prevent the regional assembly in the northeast of England. And there's been no sense that he's thinking, can we just give the, these decisions out to people locally? Despite the fact that COVID seems to have shown us several examples of local areas here and overseas being better places to um, to respond to what's going on locally and take the right decisions. So you would have thought right now the political atmosphere is quite fertile for a bit of decentralisation. Yeah, I was just coming in saying the stress in civil service reform seems to be on dispersal, which is sending civil servants off to work in different locations rather than decentralisation, which is about the movement of power. And Michael Gove's Ditchley speech talked about you know, the people making policy decisions being based in places like Teesside, rather than actually giving any power to people in Teesside or local elected leaders. But I think there's one other interesting thing about industrial strategy. Uh, and from, and sorry, I'm going to bring it back to Brexit again. But this week, this week we've seen lots of, lots of outings from manufacturers giving evidence to the Future Relationship Committee from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders about just how badly affected they may be, even in the event of the sort of Brexit deal that the government is going, that will make it harder to export cars assembled here using quite a lot of foreign content, that uh, you know, 
the chemicals industry yesterday were complaining about the massive burden that complying with two different reaches, reaches a big EU way of regulating chemicals. They're going to have to comply with EU reach and UK reach. So twice the cost for no benefit. And one of the interesting things about the government's sort of industrial policy is it's very interesting, sort of shiny and new, but it doesn't seem to be very alive to the potential costs it's imposing on a lot of incumbents. And of course, those are people who employ people here now, uh, rather than the people who will be creating jobs in the future. Yeah, a very good point. The last approaching end of the transition period affect uh, all this. Thanks for taking that. I was going to ask you exactly that point, and you've answered it. More difficult. Well, the end of this week's Inside Briefing is fast approaching. In fact, it's just about arrived. My huge thanks to Hannah White, Giles Wilkes and Jill Rutter. Thanks for being with us. And thank you all at home for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more IFG discussions, please check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There's some great new episodes waiting for you. We brought together this week some terrific panels to take a closer look at how to fund children's social care how to explore the internal market bill and what that might mean for the government's environmental policies. And on Monday, we've got a day of special fringe events as part of the Conservative Party's online conference. So do tune in. There are going to be some fascinating discussions there. The events are going to be live. Check out our website to register or listen back wherever you get your podcasts. Do look up, incidentally, the Net Zero report that Jill Rutter referred to. That's a terrific new report of ours. And you can find it and all of our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So see you next week, where, without fail, the latest episode of Inside Briefing will be recorded, edited, dispatched to your podcast feed, cutting-edge technology in action from the Institute for Government. Goodbye. Goodbye.